0: Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. My interests are medicine, hematology, oncology and health policy. And that's what you're going to get on this podcast. This week, we got a great episode in store for you. We've got an interview, and I think you're going to really like this. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, check out the new website, www.plenarysessionpodcast.com. We've got show notes, we've got trial summaries, we've got everything you could want on the website. Follow us on Twitter at plenary-session. Write a review for us on the iTunes store. And become a supporter for this podcast on Patreon. Patreon backers get access to the slides for presentations I give on Plenary Session. You also get a few bonus lectures. And with that, let's start the show. We're rolling. I'm back in plenary session, video editioned joined by the great Dr. Marth Lithgow. Dr. Lithgow is an oncologist. He is based out of London, and he um, is a terrific person who's doing terrific research. He's also on Twitter. Uh, Mark, it's a pleasure to speak with you today. Oh,
1: thanks for now. delighted to be asked. Big fan of the show, of course. Thank you.
0: Yeah, it's great to it's great to have you. Um, so, you know, I wonder if you might just take a minute and tell listeners uh, what your clinical practice is like now in London. Uh, what are the types of patients you see? Uh, and What's your interest in oncology? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I'm a sort of what, an academic clinical fellow, of medical oncology. So I'm currently at Imperial College in London. So I'm doing a, a PhD, sort of exploring the uh, modulation of the cancer microbiome. But um, before I uh, sort of studied medicine, I worked as a pharmacist for a few years. So, I'm generally quite interested in sort of meta-research, health policy, and quite uh, interested in sort of drug regulation and drug approvals as well. So, we'll be doing some interesting work, I think.
0: (laughs) So, you've done a lot of stuff. PhD?
1: Well, not yet. Not yet. Oh, uh, that's yet
0: to come. Mark, you're glutton for punishment. You're glutton for training. How many more years, my friend?
1: Uh, I don't know. So, in the UK, I've training is a bit longer than sort of in the US. So,
0: I think it's because you have to wait longer for spots to open up.
1: Yeah, that, that definitely. Uh, but also, you know, people take, you know, to have we do a PhD over three years. I think the US should do it sort of a bit
0: quicker. And I think I our see. training's a bit longer as well. So in other words, you're saying it's better. It's better training. It's better. <laughs> it's long-
1: longer, longer, long. longer, better, possibly. Um, but yeah.
0: No, the Microbiome so. in cancer. It's a, it's a yeah. hot topic. Definitely.
1: Yeah, so there's a couple of really big uh, papers published a couple of months ago in Science where they did a fecal Mm -hmm. uh, microbiota transplant, and these were patients that weren't responding to checkpoint inhibitors um, in melanoma, and what they did is they gave them the microbiome or FMT from patients that were responding, and then it transformed their response rate. So It's an interesting paper, I should
0: discuss it on this podcast. I recall I looked at that paper, I was looking for a control arm. Where was that control arm in that paper
1: yeah so i mean it wasn't <laughs> there was no control arm but still you know i think it's a proof of concept uh-huh, it's interesting
0: it's an interesting idea i mean yeah. i guess um if in fact you know i guess someday we'll find it out but i mean i guess that's the idea the idea would be that there's something about the ratio of what do they call them Firmicutes, Firmicutes, and yeah. uh is that the type yeah, of bug yeah. in the so gut all the
1: different ratios. so alpha diversity is the. Uh, is they also. call it alpha
0: diversity i see and you want yeah. like and so the theory is that if the right ratio were in the gut in combination with the checkpoint inhibitor yeah then then things will start working
1: yeah so there's been some really good studies and there, i like, think um so a chap at imperial david panato showed that if pe- patients have antibiotics whilst they're on immune checkpoint inhibitors they generally do much worse than, i see um, but it could also
0: be the condition that required the antibiotics to be administered it could be but you know chicken or the
1: egg isn't it but definitely um, yeah uh,
0: okay but that's interesting i mean i think it's, it's something fruitful worth studying and uh And I look forward to sort of a a nice controlled study. I guess the control would be, I would imagine, so fecal transplant versus, um, you could give somebody their own stool back. I mean, that would be your control. Yeah, so So
1: they do that. There's some stem cell. uh, So they're doing stem cell transplants as well, mainly because, you know, by the time patients are having stem cell transplants, they've normally got lots of, nasty, you know, uh, antibiotic resistant bugs. So if you give, if you change the microbiome then, and they do get an infection, then likely it's to be, you know, much more, you know, easily to treat with, with That's sort of antibiotics. I see. well, um, okay. Lots of, revenue, lots of uh, interesting avenues, but definitely. I see.
0: Okay, good. So we will keep a, a close eye on this field. You're here to talk about a different paper. You're here to talk about registration studies and an important yeah. issue racial diversity. So I wonder if you might talk a little bit about what, what piqued your interest in this topic? What got you interested in it?
1: Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, you know, obviously some of the big journals so you know, just looking at sort of the New England Journal of Medicine, they, they generally, you know, talk about sort of institutional racism and sort of, uh, and also, you know, about how we need to recruit sort of a, a, a sort of more diverse population for sort of clinical studies. But then if you actually sort of look at um, the studies in sort of the big journals, the amount of times that they actually talk, actually report race is actually quite low. Hmm. So, you know, for me, the first thing to do would really be to, to actually acknowledge this sort of a, an issue by sort of, you know, mandating that, that sort of people, uh, that, that sort of journals report
0: uh, sort of race. Um, I see. That's interesting. So I guess what you're saying is they talk a good game. But let's yeah, see what they actually yeah, do. Yeah, exactly. so, Let's see what they do. Yeah, let's see definitely. what they do. Um, I did try and, a
1: letter for a big journal, and yeah, obviously <laughs> it was a, a speedy, speedy rejection. So
0: oh, so interestingly, so they weren't so interested in hearing the feedback. <laughs> <laughs> no,
1: exactly. So, but uh, definitely, you know, I think, um, and so I think, you know, underreporting is a, is a massive problem, and you know, I, I think definitely, you know, once we acknowledge there is a. Uh, a, a racial diversity problem, you know, once we report it, then, you know, we can ascertain the the sort of extent of the problem, really.
0: I see. Okay, good. I'm, I'm with you. I mean, I think, um, you know, the first step in any question is to just document what's actually going on. And uh, the first step on issues of reporting is to see what they're actually reporting. So, well, yeah.
1: They actually have a, their own sort of, you know, the International Committee of uh, General and Medical ethics Ah, uh, the
0: ICMJE, my favorite yeah, people yeah. in the world. So okay. in their
1: guidelines, they specify that you should, you know, uh, for variables such as race where you don't know the significance, they sh- should be reported. Mm, so that was sort of, I see. You know, a of the premise for, for, for this sort of study.
0: Interesting. Oh, so they actually say that, huh? Yeah. Do they have any guidelines in there about whether or not you should write your own paper because that's something that I don't see happen to us
1: <laughs> um I, I think they're a bit more nebulous on that.
0: Matter. <laughs> yeah a bit more nebulous. yeah okay yeah, that, yeah, part,
1: yeah.
0: That, that part's weaker okay well all right so this is how you you first got interested in it you've taken a look uh now you first looked at prostate cancer and yeah. you know and there and I think there are substantive reasons why one might want to know that information on the racial makeup of of clinical trials in prostate cancer I wonder if you'll walk us through you know why did you start with prostate cancer and 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 um, and and and
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So we know that the you know the the sort of disparities are quite significant in prostate cancer. So you know, if you look at the sort of um, sort of black um, sort of instance and the sort of white caucasian instance, there's definitely sort of some big dis- disparities and also in the aggressiveness and and the stage of presentation as well. So I think, you know, I'm generally you know quite interested in GU oncology. So, you know, it's an area that I was quite interested to sort of look at. And there has been some really interesting studies uh, in this area. So there was a good journal oncology paper by Laurie in 2019, which sort of looks at all sort of different types of cancers. Uh, but obviously, you know, the, the one that sort of stood out for me was was really sort of prostate cancer. And there are, has been some um, studies that have looked at, sort of a similar question in prostate cancer, but no one's really looked at the sort of um, the specific FDA sort of uh, approval trials. And really the reason that I sort of was really interested to look at that was because, you know, the FDA did actually write some very good guidelines Mm. in 2016. And so we were keen to see, you know, (laughs) the effect that these guidelines have had sort of on uh, sort of race reporting and also the diversity in trials as well. So we sort of looked at five years after and 10 years before to mm-hmm. sort of do a do a sort of comparison between them
0: fascinating and the paper's out now it's called race reporting and diversity in u.s food and drug administration registration trials for prostate cancer 20 2006 to 2020 um and this is in prostate cancer and prostatic diseases there's yes it's in the it's, it's 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 when you want to focus on the prostate you pick up a copy exactly, of
1: exactly. you know prostate cancer, you want to for more prostatic. focus just on your disease area then. every is. month
0: they have the right lobe and then the left lobe issues they have the two <laughs> the two issues you don't want exactly. to don't want to mix them up accidentally you want to make sure exactly. you're
1: in the right and definitely lobe. one of the co-authors is a, a big fan of the journal my, my colleague dr savage so he sort of suggested it
0: that's good well at some point you know uh, you know I've, I've been there I'd start taking suggestions from anybody at some point i take take any suggestion where do we send this paper okay good but I mean it's a it's really important I mean I think um it's really important um and um and 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 i wonder if you might just walk us through the findings i mean what what did you find i mean the first question of course is who's reporting this information the next question is what are they reporting and then the next question is did they actually get better uh when they actually issued guidelines
1: yeah so i mean these are you know definitely sort of really good questions and so you know we looked at a period so 15 years so so 10 years before the fda guidelines and, and five years afterwards and so we noticed there were sort of 17 uh, sort of new drug registrations, over 10 unique drugs. Mm. And when you look at the uh, sort of licensing publications, so the the publication in, you know in the New England Journal of Medicine or the Lancet, then only around about sort of 50% of them actually reported race. And then if you look at that 50% that did report race, then sort of, you know, almost sort of 40% of them only really reported sort of partial information. So... For example, only white versus non-white, or, or, or sort of those, those sorts of groups. So, so not really sort of a, a sort of adequate uh, reporting. And generally, what we tried to do then was to go and look at the FDA documentation, and we were expecting, you know, hopefully to get hundred um, percent sort of compliance. But right. unfortunately, yeah, it wasn't quite hundred percent. It was good, but it, it, you know, there was definitely you know a couple of studies that that you know you've got no idea as to the the sort of uh, sort of racial diversity. Of, participants in
0: in these trials. So I'm not happy with this. I mean, I think, you know, I I mean, I think we have to come back to the fact that, um, you know, like why, why, I mean, why should, I mean, just kind of like reiterate, like why this would really matter is that, you know, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, like what is their goal? I mean, I think we we, we forget. I mean, these some days we forget what their goal is. Uh, I think recently they just forgot for a few days, they forgot what the hell they're doing. I think their goal, God forbid, is to regulate drug products in a way um, that's relevant to Americans. And the thing about Americans is we are uh, people of all different races, all different ethnicities, all different backgrounds, all different heritages. Um, And and some of those things may impact how the therapies work in us. Not all of those things, not always, but sometimes they do. Um, uh, But... um, the other thing about us is that uh, the other thing about Americans is that, you know, often those of us who have cancer, we're older, we're frailer. Um, After we progress on initial therapies, we get access to certain drugs because we have a certain insurance system, a certain thing. And the goal of the FDA is to say that in this environment, Americans, how they look the way they look, they are the way they are in this environment. How do you um, ensure that these drugs will make us better off? I mean, I think that's the core question. And and go on you
1: want to say something yeah no no i think it's a really good point and you know i think if you if you've got some time in your hand and you read the fda documentation yes yeah. and they actually did a review and uh, they found that sort of around about sort of 20 or one fifth of drugs actually demonstrate sort of differences in sort of exposure and response across different sort of race and ethnic groups so you know i think there's definitely some acknowledgement within the within the guidance that the that this is something that should should and needs to be reported
0: yes definitely. i um... I couldn't agree more. Um, and I, and I think the point, the point I was, I want to finish driving home is that, um, is that they fail. I mean, in my opinion, they fail. And here's why they fail they are allowing the companies to use contract research organizations that go predominantly in countries that have different uh, development. They're low and middle income countries. They have different access to resources. Um, they have different healthcare system development, meaning they probably don't have access to certain second line drugs. They have different racial makeup. They may not want to report the racial makeup because you might be in a country um, in Eastern Europe where it's predominantly Caucasian. Um, that might not be relevant for um, United States. Uh, um, you know, a, a, a white person. In Eastern Europe, who has no therapy post progression, who is ten years younger than the average person in this country, uh, who's not taking any other medications for comorbidities, might have less to do with somebody here in a uh, uh, in a multicultural, diverse yeah. society who's older, on different medications, different BMI, uh, you know, different um, post protocol therapy, um, and and the more that these differences accumulate, the less relevant the data is. Um, and in prostate cancer, it's particularly relevant because prostate cancer. Um, for better or worse, uh, is a cancer as you point out uh, known for uh, disparities, particularly for Black individuals who seem to suffer yep. disproportionately from this disease. So, um, okay, what? So, what? So, you. Fu- so, the first thing you found was this reporting. Did it get better, Mark? Did it get better when they changed the guidelines? Well,
1: guideline? it depends how you define better. So, you know, yes, there was a slight percentage gain, but you know, we're talking you know less than sort of five five percent. So, so, statistically so significant be- but not
0: clinically meaningful.
1: Yeah, so, so in other yeah. words,
0: right where we like to be in oncology. Exactly. <laughs> uh, kind of
1: but you know, we've repeated this sort of study in in recently, you know, breast cancer. And you know, we're presenting a poster sort of next week at Esmo Breast. And and that is actually, you know, when the FDA introduced this criteria, then suddenly there's a their reporting rate's gone massively much better, you know, oh. it's the
0: 90%. Really? So you're saying yeah. it's better in breast cancer?
1: Yeah. So and and the question is what, you know, what what's the difference between breast cancer you know breast cancer and prostate cancer so definitely so you know i think it's a you know really interesting and i'm not quite sure what the answer is between the differences that we we yeah what is the difference
0: yeah i mean they both are i mean i was going to say is is it that pink ribbon is that what motivated it no i mean Uh, they're both both cancers with you know robust patient groups yeah go on
1: you know triple negative breast does show again sort of significant sort of you know race disparity in terms of outcomes and aggressiveness. So, you know, uh, perhaps there are more, more driving factors, you know, just associated with, with, with the sort of, you know, with breast cancer more than sort of prostate cancer. But
0: but, yeah, I don't know is the (laughs) answer to the question. Hmm. Okay. Well, um, what next Mark, where do you go from here? I mean, you, you, you're, you're making a good point. I thought I saw somebody, you know, somebody recently, they also looked at it more broadly and, um, I think, across all um, FDA approvals, even outside of oncology? Is that what I saw? It's a paper by Joe Ross and colleagues?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I think, um, that, you know, I think there's, there are there are definitely some really good papers. And I hope this is an issue that's becoming sort of, you know, m- much more sort of topical, much more sort of debatable. So yeah. I think definitely, you know, this is a, an area that needs, you know, a lot more research. But I think, you know, once if we can get sort of medical journals to, to sort of, you know, report sort of race, and, yeah. um, you know, it's the, it's the norm, then, you know, you're going to, people are going to do further research because, the, you know, the data is sort of out there. So I think, you know, it's really a, a sort of call on sort of medical journals to, to sort of, you know, mandate sort of reporting a bit more.
0: Have you read uh, a little paper that I like to call um, Data Sharing with One uh, by Jenny Gill and I that appeared, I think, in Trends in Cancer the last year? I'm sure you must have read it because, you know, obviously it's the most important paper. Yeah. Right?
1: Um, You might have to remind me. Remind me. uh,
0: (laughs) uh, Well, uh, the the reason I think about it is, you know, um, we are in a moment where um, MJE a few years ago, they thought about data sharing. What does data sharing mean? It means share, uh, at least as they described it, for prospective clinical studies of human volunteers, share um, data uh, on those individual patients in the study uh, at least insofar as you can recapitulate the the figures and tables of the paper. They didn't ask for more than that, just recapitulating the figures and tables of the paper. And this was ultimately struck down in their internal bureaucracy. Obviously, yep. uh, a lot of pressure from the industry that they'd prefer not to share. Uh, although some companies claim that they share, it's really a farce because sharing where you have to apply through a, a year-long process and get approval and can only look at the data in a portal, you know that ain't sharing at all. And anyway, so anyway, we, we, this is a long-standing debate about how much data sharing we should have. And in this data sharing, Jenny Gill and I noted one thing, that the FDA actually, they do have data sharing by um, by the law. Um, they have access to individual patient level data for drugs that they approve so that they have a copy of the data. We don't have a copy of the data. You and I don't have a copy, but they have a copy of the data. Presumably, they actually know the answer to that question in all of these trials. How many people are of whatever race you want? How old are they? What medicines they take? They know all the answers to those questions. Um, we don't know the answers. They know the answers. Um, so we looked at the papers that the FDA has published over a period of time. I forget off the top of my head, 10 years or so. And we asked how often using the information the FDA has, not necessarily as part of the purview of their job, regulating drugs. How often do they leverage this information to ask a different question? What are those different questions and how well do they look? We published this in trends in cancer. We call it data sharing with one because it's data sharing, but with just one other person it's the FDA. Yeah. Yeah. And what we found was, um, they use it for, uh, I mean, you know, I, uh, um, they use it for a number of quite interesting purposes. A lot of interesting things from surrogate validation to questions of diversity to, you know, population questions. Uh, you can read the paper. We kind of describe the things they do with it. They do it for a lot of interesting things, and they do a lot of interesting things with that data. And our argument is this is what happens when you share with one other entity. Imagine what would happen if you shared more broadly. And I think that's the lesson, is that if you had access to some of this data, you could ask the question of um, what is the racial makeup of this and does race matter for some of these things? Does it actually matter for these therapeutics? I can ask a different question. I can ask, does censoring matter? What's the censoring rates? What's the completion of the quality of life questionnaire? Does that matter? You know, we can ask, you know, and th- then we can ask the question that I can't even say what we're working on because we're going to publish that paper. Um, <laughs> cool. But we can ask questions about different plots and how you might plot things differently. Um, yeah. So but but I think that's the key lesson is that. Um, we are limited in science by proprietary data. I believe that is contrary and antithetical to the, to the uh, implicit social contract people make when they enroll in studies. I'm enrolling in a study because I'm donating my body for science to make the world better for people like me in the future. I'm not enrolling in the study so that a handful of investigators who may not have time or energy or interest or may not even think of the idea will conduct a, a sub-tiny fraction of you know subsidiary studies. Subsidiary yeah. studies. Um, I think that's the core tension. We still need to resolve it that?
1: No, yeah, definitely. I think um, you know, having, having access to data, you know, at least the sort of more people being able to reach different interpretations, I think, you know, and hopefully it strengthens the, the argument that whoever is originally set out to to sort of collect oh, the think, data has, yeah. has sort of reached uh obviously not always but you hope sort of most of the time but you know that's science isn't it you know that's people nice. all have different opinions you know, and having the data out there really helps people to to sort of validate and, and and sort of you know bring forth new ideas and 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 you know so i think it's really important to to sort of have increased t- transparency you know with any sort of data for clinical trials really
0: Yes. In God, we trust all others bring data. And actually, I, I want to say this other thing that you made me think about clinical trials. It's different than other. I mean, I don't know, Mark, if I ask you to like, um, you know, pull every publication on uh, a VEGF TKI uh, ever done every phase two study and you meticulously go through the literature and you pull all the papers and you make an Excel spreadsheet. Okay. Somebody will say, well, should Mark share his data set? I said, you know, you know, I I mean, that's a question. It's a fair question. Maybe in the future, Mark should share his data set. Um, But, you know, for the time being, it's not, a, it's not a proprietary data set. You can recapitulate the data set if you wish to, if you put Mark's elbow grease into it. And then the other thing is it's not a data set where people have volunteered. That's the difference with trials. With trials, the, the subject of the data in Mark's hypothetical data set is the study that's published on a, you know, you can go find it. The subject of the data in the trials is a human being who put themselves on the line in order to further knowledge. And that is a different social contract. So I'm happy to have all total data sharing. You want data sharing, you can have data sharing. I'm happy to post everything we do. However, if you were to start someplace, you got to start at the place that makes the most sense, which to me, these trials.
1: Definitely. Yeah, yeah, no. I think, you know, these people enter, you know, pa- patients enter clinical trials and hope that they're going to further science, further new treatments. And I think, you know, sharing data is, is absolutely key. And that's what, you know, very much what any patient who goes on to a cancer trial or, or clinical trial beyond well beyond cancer, you know, hopes, I think.
0: Much I'm agree. glad to hear that, Mark. Mark, is it fair to say you're a card-carrying planter? Are you a planner?
1: Definitely, Plenard? definitely. I know <laughs> in the UK you've got a, a lot of a lot of fans. Definitely,
0: I got the stats. Actually, uh, we're much we're, we're we're much more popular in Europe. We're we're, okay. we're yeah, we're uh we're an espresso. You know, we're Jewish not we're through. not drip coffee. We're not drip coffee. We're espresso. You know, uh, very good. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, Mark Lithgow, it's a pleasure to talk to you. I think, um, you know, it's been great working with you. I don't know. Listeners don't know, but we have a Zoom meeting uh, once a week where the whole laboratory, as you know, our lab gets together, Mark, we get the whole lab Uh together once a week, the whole lab. um, There's always somebody who has suffered a recent pipetting injury, you know, but we let them rest. We give them a week off, two weeks off, um, get the lab Uh together and we have a chat. It's good. Always a good chat.
1: I think we're waiting for uh, we're waiting for the photo of, uh, of yourself in a, a lab coat with a pipette. I'm sure Logan. Yeah. Gotta, Logan add, that Logan to the, Powell, gotta uh, add that
0: to the lab site. Yeah, yeah. 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 But Definitely. you know, um, I always enjoy the lab meetings because, uh, and you're always one of the people who fight me. You fight me all the time, fighting <laughs> me. Is like, that's not that's not. A, I don't know about that idea. I don't. Know. You always have a look on your face that's dissatisfied, and actually love it because. Um, too. I'm to be. You're the you. review. <laughs> we invited reviewer two. Yeah, yeah. let reviewer two in here yeah. well but you know it's good yeah, yeah. you always want you always want to be a, a critical critical person in the room
1: so mark yeah i mean you know i think we've got some you know you've got those really exciting projects i think you know but i think sometimes you know maybe you know we'd love to be able to do these massive projects but you know i think you know maybe sometimes you have to sort of temper our, our ambition slightly and, and i, I think know maybe right. that's where i come in.
0: Yeah, that, that, that's why we, we, in, we invite Mark to temper the, no, I think, I think it's important. Oh, well, of course. I mean, if you really want, if you really want a group of people to talk around science and talk about a project, there's, yeah. if, if people, I mean, you also want a place where people are comfortable that they can say the idea is terrible and they don't think it's worth pursuing. You want to have that environment because if you have just people who tell you the idea is good, you're going to do a lot of things that somebody else someday later yeah. will tell you it's bad. Yeah,
1: definitely. Yeah, no, definitely. I, you know, we do have some really good
0: productive, Discussions, Productive discussions, yes. Banter. And ha- and we have a good laugh, which is key. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Mark, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for doing no this. Worries. People should check out the paper. Um, it is a, a very important paper. It's uh, out now. We'll tweet the link. We'll put it out in the show notes. Mark Lithgow, pleasure.
1: Great. No worries. Thanks for the
0: You've been listening to Season 3 of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klosner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.